God, I pray that you would be glorified during this time among people who so much for this church. Please bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, we're in Hebrews 5. We didn't actually get around to reading a whole lot of verses last week. At least not, not in Hebrews. Um, we've been going through Hebrews for a little while now, and just like we were going through Acts, we're just going through verse at a time. Um, and we're trying to see what the Bible says. Because we, me, Tanner, all of us here, Paul, we can't really say anything better than what God has said. So we definitely want to just soak this in and try to understand this. Last week, though, I kind of put the brakes on that for just a second. Not, not talking about the Bible, but, but just kind of pedaling forward with, with the verses because Hebrews, where we are, and sorry if uh, I can get my card here. I made notes. We have some Bibles that are in the back. Dale would be happy to get you one. If, you, if somebody needs a Bible, let Dale know. You can just raise your hand. Um, we have some Bibles. You can use those. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that with you. But um, I wrote down some page numbers. So if anybody is using one of those and you're not quite sure where we're at, um, we're on page 649. That's Hebrews 5. But the author of Hebrews, the guy that wrote the, the book that we're in right now, he was writing to Jews in the first century. So he just starts talking about Jewish stuff that when we read it, if we're not, if we don't know what he's talking about, then we would just say, we just have to say, okay, well, I'll just 
pretend like I know what you're talking about. Um, so I didn't want that to be us. I wanted to make sure that we, we knew what he was talking about and why it was important. He started talking about uh, something called a high priest. Probably most of us have heard of priests. Um, but he talked about high priest and how Jesus was our high priest. And I kind of thought, you know, I don't really think about Jesus as a high priest. And we kind of did that. I said, what, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Like, what kind of titles do you give him? And we came up with a few, like healer and, and redeemer, savior, these sorts of things. But high priest is not the first thing that jumps to mind. It's, it's probably because we're not Jews and we don't, we don't live in this system where we have these, like, priests that serve up in church and we don't have, we're not Catholics. So we don't have these priests that we confess to, um, at least not a human. So, so that's not really a category that a lot of us think of when we think of Jesus. Um, so I kind of just stepped through there and said, okay, what is, why is a, who is a high priest? What is a high priest? Why is it necessary? So just really quick recap without having to go through the whole thing. Essentially, God made everything good. God made everything, and he made it good. It talks about that in Genesis 1. So, so immediately we have, to, we have to establish who God is and who we are, because that's really important to know when you're talking about a high priest. So God made everything, he made everything good, so he's over everything. And, and we rebel. If you, know, you probably know the story of Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God, and God um, punished that rebellion. And we talked about how that was kind of a natural thing. He, he, he said that the punishment for this is going to be death. And I kind of talked about how that, that seems like a harsh thing, but if you think about it, God is the author of life, right? Life exists because God made life. So if you say, God, I don't want what you have, I don't want to do what you're telling me to do, then, then you're rebelling against the guy who made life. So what's the opposite of that? It's death. So, so God says, okay, you're essentially going to get what you want now. You get death. And he kills this animal in front of them and, and gives them these clothes. So I kind of discussed how, how this is almost like a precedent. Like this animal is going to die to cover you up. And, and that is important with regard to the high priest. He also said, you can't stay here anymore. They were in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. They sinned. But God said, you can't stay here anymore. You have sinned. You need to leave this perfect place. You need to leave my presence. And you cannot come back here. So those two things happened after, after people sinned. And we inherited that. The Bible talks about that all over the place. Since we are descendants of those people... We inherit that situation, so we are, from birth, rebellious against God. Uh, David talks about that in Psalms, how from, we were pretty much born in sin, because we inherited that situation. So we're separated from God, and we're, we're going to die. And, and that, that's kind of, that's the way it was for a long time. And then thousands of years later in the Bible, God comes to a people, and he says, I'm going to bring you back into my presence. And that's, that's kind of what the book of Exodus is about, where you have Moses and the people out of Egypt. You know, we think about the miracles and the cool stuff that happened, but that was really, if you're thinking of it in terms of like the whole Bible, the big picture, that's, that's God saying, I want to be your God in your presence among you. I'm going to restore this broken relationship. So they, they come before God, but it's not all just perfect again, because they're still, they're still sinful, they're still broken, and, and God knows that, but he wants us to know that. So when, when they walked up to God, literally walked up to God, he was on, he said, meet me at this mountain. It's on, and 
they walked up there and it was on fire and there was clouds around me and there was this huge thundering noise that they couldn't even they couldn't even deal with and and we kind of talked about why and, and the point was God was going to show them that they they were not on His level like He He wanted to say and He was saying come closer to me I want to I want to reconstruct this broken relationship but but he couldn't pretend as though sin wasn't there, like that didn't happen. So, so he, he brought Moses up and he said, nobody else touches this mountain. It's holy, if you touch it, you're going to die. He wanted them to, to, to be shocked, I guess, and to, and, to, and to know that this was a serious matter. And he brought Moses up and he laid out all this law. And if you know Leviticus and, and parts of Exodus, the, the boring, what people, people often say, the boring parts of the Bible, um, or the weird, you know, out, seemingly outdated parts of the Bible, all of that was, was showing the Israelites that, that God was holy, meaning that he was separate from them, and they were sinful, and because they were sinful, they, he had to show them how they were supposed to live. He said, you can't just go around doing whatever you want, here are some rules, and, and the, what, the point wasn't that we would follow every one of those rules. But the bigger point was to show us that it's impossible for us to follow all these rules. You need something greater than this to, to fulfill this for you. They had this role called a high priest back then. And the role of the high priest was to come before God. And he was the only one who could literally come before God inside of this temple where God actually, it says, met him. And he would, he would offer sacrifices for the people once a year. He would show up and he would offer the blood of this sacrifice. Which again sounds weird, but it's, it's this death of this animal which is, which is taking their place. And it's, 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 a, it's a way to show them that your sin is serious and it requires that somebody or something die on your behalf. So this high priest would come up and he would offer the sacrifice. But the stipulations for this kind of relationship were, were extreme. We would call them extreme. Um, the high priest had to be a certain kind of person. There were 12 tribes in Israel and he had to be of a certain tribe, the Levites. So it couldn't just be anybody. You know? The one guy couldn't just be like, I volunteered to do this. It had to be from this tribe. Not only just from this tribe, it had to be from a specific father. Aaron, Moses' brother, was the first high priest, and every high priest after him came from his line. So not just a Levite, but a Levite from Aaron's house. So even more further stipulations, but not just a Levite from Aaron's house, but also they had this giant list of things. Maybe not giant, a long list of things that they had to adhere to. It couldn't just be anybody from Aaron's house. It had to be somebody who was essentially considered without blemish, without spot. He didn't have physical ailments. He didn't have uh, sin in his life. He didn't have, he cut his hair a certain way. They're, they had to dress a certain way. They, they had a lot of stipulations. And, and all that was to show them that you don't, you don't just walk up in front of God. If you're gonna do this, you do this on God's terms. And so the high priest represented, he was, he was a mediator for all of Egypt, not all of Egypt, maybe Jesus, um, for all the Israelites, 
only one who can do that job. So that kind of gives us you know, a brief background. When, when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our high priest, we're supposed to think of all those things, like the seriousness of that, of that kind of relationship, the fact that we couldn't go before God, but this high priest, this one God, could. But, getting into Hebrews 5, he's now going to explain how Jesus is not exactly the same kind of high priest that they had back then. We're kind of slow cooking this argument. Um, the author of Hebrews is going to go through this, this concept of Jesus being a high priest for almost five whole chapters of Hebrews. Hebrews is often called the epistle of, of priesthood by several different people. Um, it deals more than any other book in the New Testament with this concept of high priest. So we're going to see a lot of facets of this. So today we're going to focus on just a little piece of it. So I know I left out a lot of things about the high priest last week. And, and even at the end of this, we're going to say, isn't there more to this? Yeah, there's a lot more. But we're kind of taking this in stride. So feel free definitely through the week to read through this and, and to kind of jump forward so you get a better understanding of all that this means. But we're going to take our time through this and try to understand it. And hopefully by the end of this, we really see what, or maybe why this is important, and, and, and what specifically Christ had to do for us. So let's go ahead and start reading. And I'm just going to read through the first ten verses, and then we'll go back, and uh, we'll talk about that. So we're in Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. And it should be, yeah, you got it. <clears throat> for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. In relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever and after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of interesting language in here. Phrasing is pretty interesting towards the end of this. When we started reading Hebrews, I remember specifically looking at this and saying, there's interesting things in here. I feel like I've got a much better grasp on it now that we've been able to study or Hebrews. So I hope that we kind of understand the situation a little bit better by the end of our time today. Essentially, he has already claimed that Jesus is a high priest several times. He's already done it three times in Hebrews previously. Um, but last week was the first time we really focused on Jesus being a high priest because he's about to get into this intense argument. Um, or not, not an argument, but a kind of a case for Jesus being this high priest. <clears throat> But you can almost you can almost feel him or 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 anticipate that he's he's talking the way that he's talking here 
Because again, he's talking to Jews. And when he says that Jesus is a high priest, that's automatically going to send up some red flags for Jews. Because if they know anything about Jesus, they're going to say, wait a second, wait a second. You're saying Jesus is a high priest, but he's not, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And the Old Testament law specifically says that, that priests and Aaron and his descendants, the high priests, had to come from that tribe. So how are you telling me that Jesus is the high priest when he doesn't fit the mold? How, would, how is it that he could come up and say, kind of self-proclaim, I am the high priest? Wouldn't that be going against what God had said previously? He's kind of anticipating that argument, similar to the way that he did with, with the angels, when he was saying that Jesus is better than angels, and then, they, and then he kind of anticipates, well, if he's better than angels, why do I get to die? He kind of goes through and explains that. The same thing here in chapter 5, where he's saying, well... Yeah, I know you're going to tell me he's not from the tribe of Levi, but, but hear me out. I'm going to make this argument. So he gets into this. So the first four verses talk about the normal kind of human qualifications for being a high priest. And then he comes back 5 through 10 and says, and this is Jesus fulfilling those requirements. So that's kind of the breakdown. So if we look at that, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. It's interesting there that he doesn't specifically say Levites or Aaron's descendants or anything like that. He, but he does say chosen from among men. But it's kind of passive there. It's not, it's not that the guy just walks up and says, I volunteer to do this. He's chosen. And specifically he's chosen from among his brothers. From among the Israelites. We've talked about that a little bit already. How, how we're considered brothers with Christ, and how he, he became one of us, he became one of the Israelites, but also a person, a human, and so he's able to call us brothers. This is kind of the same idea where he's saying every high priest is chosen from among, uh, chosen from among men. So, first of all, first qualification for a high priest, he's chosen from among men. If we're going to use this language, you can, even, you can be more specific and say Levites. Um, or Aaron's descendants. But he's chosen from among men. And he's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We're not going to get so much into sacrifices and sins yet. Like I said, we're on a slow over here. So we're going to give this some time. We'll definitely get in there. Once we get into chapter 8, we'll start talking about sacrifices. So he's got to offer gifts and sacrifices. And when did, when did Jesus ever fulfill this kind of task? When did he ever offer gifts and sacrifices? Didn't see him in the temple fulfilling the role of high priest. So how could he do this? Um, second qualification. He can deal gently with the wayward, or the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So, him being from among his brothers, he, he has this mediating role. He, he comes before God on behalf of the people he represents, and he intercedes for them. And it says of the human high priest that not only did he intercede for them, he also, he was there serving as a high priest almost for himself as much as anybody. Because... 
the high priest from the Israelites was sinful. And here's a bit of contrast. And we know that Jesus was not sinful, but the high priest among men was sinful. So when he came before God, that's why we have all these rules. Because he was a sinner, and he couldn't just walk up there. As a matter of fact, we read last week that uh, it said, if you, just, if you just come here, come into the, the temple before I tell you to, you will die. Because he was sinful. So, when the humanly high priest comes before God, he offers sacrifices not just for the Israelites, but for himself. And he's able to deal gently with them. And a few people made a big deal out of dealing gently. Like, it's actually a struggle for humans, and I can get that. Um, like, it's hard for us to do that. Because we are sinful. So when, people, so when we have to help out people, you get aggravated with having to help people. Um, but it's telling, it's telling us that he ought to be able to do this because he himself is ignorant and weak. <clears throat> and then the last thing that it mentions in verse 4 is that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So it lays out these things. He's kind of anticipating. You are gonna, I know you're going to struggle with this, so let me tell you. Um, the high priest has to be chosen from among men. He represents his brothers and... He's not just chosen, he's chosen by God himself. So does Jesus stack up to these qualifications? So he, he kind of, in reverse, goes back and addresses them. So, so he lists out the qualifications, A, B, C, and then he's going to say C, B, A. Come back, let's, let's say he does all this. So verse 5, he says, so also. He's building a bridge between verse 4 and 5 there. So also did not, uh, Christ did not exalt himself be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said, and we've seen this earlier in Hebrews, you are my son today I have begotten you he's referencing Psalm 2 verse 7 which again, if you want to look at it and if you have one of those Bibles, it's page 286 I'm not going to go back because he pretty much said exactly what Psalm 2 7 says, um, but he had used that earlier in Hebrews 1 to say that Christ was the son of God there's a lot of interesting language used in here. And I'll, maybe I'll get that ahead of myself. I'll get there here in a second. Um, but the point is, this is interesting. Christ was humble. That's one of our, that's going to be a bullet point. I don't have points up there, but Christ was humble. And though he could have, he did not just walk up and take it for himself. It says that. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. This is really, really important for, the, for a lot of the rest of this argument. Christ was humble. <coughs> and he wasn't just humble before God. He was humble before men also. He was humble for, for, just, for just coming up and, and, and doing this. He didn't walk up and say, I'm the high priest now. He let God say it for him. So that his authority... Though he had it, wasn't just demonstrated by him walking in and becoming a self-proclaimed man in charge over everybody. He let God speak for him. And he, he constantly would say <clears throat> that he was representing the Father. He speaks the Father's words. He's, 
he's, he's here to do the will of his father. So, he kind of go ahead, he, he knocks that one out. Father of Hebrews does this and says, you know what? He, he did not just walk up and call himself the high priest. God calls him that. And he starts using all of this language. He says, you are my son today I have begotten. Also, in another place, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is another thing I'm just going to have to put on hold. There's so many things in Hebrews that kind of get teased really early, but then he goes on to elaborate a big time later. Um, chapter 7 is all about this concept. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But what you can know right now is that he's setting up a contract. So he's saying, okay, yes, Jesus was appointed by God himself. He didn't just come up and take this for himself. He was appointed by God. However, he wasn't a priest in the sense that you're used to seeing priests. Because Melchizedek was not, he was not a priest in the time of Moses and Aaron. He was not a high priest after the law was given. He was a priest way before then. Almost out, out before the law, outside of the law. So when he's saying that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this is signaling to them, wait a second, that's not at all like, like the high priest that we're used to seeing. This is a different kind of high priest. And you can go back and read that. I don't think it's going to hurt you to read that. I'm not going to read it right now, but I'll give you the reference. It's in Genesis. Just blank. Yes, yeah, 14, 17 through really 20, but really 17 to the end of the chapter we do a picture of the whole thing, I guess, the whole interchange. Um, 17 through 24 is kind of the, that whole section. So Genesis 14, 17 through 24. If you want to read that kind of in preparation for what Tanner is going to preach in chapter 7, then that might help you. Um, but, but for us, the point is, this is not a Levitical priest. He's different. Let's move on just for now. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. There's a lot of interesting things here, I keep saying this. This idea that you know the Bible, then you know that Jesus says before Abraham, I am. And he, he, he says, I was there. It, it talks about Jesus as being there at creation. So, Jesus, his personhood, his humanity, was not the beginning of Jesus. He is eternal in the same sense that, the same sense that God the Father is eternal. So it's weird, at least I got hung up on this, it's weird to use this kind of language like, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, I thought he was eternal. Does that mean that Jesus was created? And then here it talks about, he was heard because of his reverence. Were you saying that he wasn't, he wasn't heard just because he was God? And then in verse 8 it talks about, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned something? He's God. Verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. 
well, he wasn't the source of eternal salvation beforehand? There's this weird, I don't know, thought line that you kind of have to think about. And, and I think it all makes sense, but it didn't make sense until just a few short hours ago. Within the last 48 hours, I feel like I kind of have a better grasp on this. So let's just, I was, I was unsure about how to approach this, because there's just a lot to it. I'll start in verse 5, where he says, You are my son today, I'll be God you. I don't think that that means that God, at a certain point in history, created Jesus. I think that that would be the opposite of what is said several other places, that, that Jesus is eternal in the same sense that God is eternal. So I wouldn't say that. However, it's talked about already in Hebrews, this idea that Jesus was glorified after he died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. So, I think that when it says, you are my son today, I have begotten you, he's saying that the day that Jesus was glorified, after his, his death and resurrection, and he goes to sit at the right hand of God, I think that at that point in time, God is saying, you are my son, today I have glorified you, almost in a sense. Today I have, I have brought you to my right hand to sit as, as Savior, as High Priest, as Mediator, as, as everything that Jesus is. So I think that that's kind of the idea there. It's not that he was created, but that he was glorified. And this happened at a certain point in history. So I feel okay saying, yeah, before Jesus came in the flesh, this, this had not happened. So it was planned all along, but it had not happened. So when it happened, God glorifies him as a son. And it says later, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So this sounds like a high priest. He's interceding. He's, he's offering up, offering prayers, supplications. He's praying to God, loud cries and tears. So even him being God, he was also a mediator and prayed to God. And it talks about Jesus' prayer life was, was spectacular. And, and it's, we, we struggled to keep up because he made time to pray to God, and he did how much more do we need? But, but he prays to God. And this makes me think, the way that it kind of contextualizes this, it makes me think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's about to, to die on the cross, right? It says that with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his reverence. So, let's go ahead and read that. Luke 22, and I think this will actually be up on the screen. Luke 22, 41 through 44. That's page 573 if you're using one of our, our Bibles from back there. Again, page 573. Luke 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's praying in a, in a, in under a kind of stress that I'm not sure that any of us have experienced. But he's praying to God. And, and I thought about this kind of in light of Hebrews. I thought about this differently. I've always taken this to mean that he was praying for God to... I've heard two different ways of understanding this. That, that he was either praying to be saved from the cross, as in like, please don't let me suffer physically this way. And a lot of times that's what we think of, kind of in, from a human perspective. We think, okay, he's going to the cross, he's going to suffer at like horribly in a physical sense. So when we think of, if we were going to pray something like that, it would definitely be like, please save us from this execution, because this execution is going to be horrible. And, and for a while, I kind of read it that way. Another way to read it is that he's trying to be spared from the wrath of God. I think that kind of in the light of Hebrews, where it's talking about, he offered up prayer supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's interesting. To him who was able to save him from death. I think that what he's praying there isn't save me from the cross, but bring me back from death. <clears throat> and that makes me think of, and I forgot to write down the song, but there's a song that talks about, that's, that's kind of predictive of Jesus' situation and says, God, you won't abandon my soul to shield, to hell. You won't abandon my soul to hell. And it makes me think of this prayer that Jesus is offering here, that he's saying, you won't, please don't abandon me to hell. I kind of get that from this context. And for me, I just thought that that was interesting, because I've never thought of it that way. But, but Hebrews kind of frames it in that, that way, where it's saying that he's praying with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt. And thus he was, he was raised. And it's interesting that it says because of his reverence. And I feel like that's a... For us, since we're supposed to live as Christ lives, I think that this tells us a little bit of something about how we're supposed to approach God. You would think that if anybody didn't have to pray, it would be Jesus. But he did. And he prayed more fervently more seriously than we did. And he set time apart. He, spent, he stayed up late into the night praying. And he told his disciples, pray for me. And he comes back and they're asleep because it's late. It's the middle of the night. And they're stressed out. They've had long days. But he's, he's praying and he's made this a priority. So how much more do we need to pray? How much more serious should our prayers be? It's also comforting to know that as a high priest... He's, he's offering up prayers and supplications in several parts of the Bible. It talks about him interceding for us. He prays for us. It talk, even while he was here, it talks about um, him praying for Peter. Because he says, Peter, Satan wanted, wanted to sift you like wheat, but, but I pray for you so that you would not fall. Now, after this is done, go back and strengthen your brothers. He prays for us. 
And how much more ought we to pray to Him and to pray also and, and approach God with reverence? It's interesting that He knows the plan. I don't think, I think a big argument against Jesus praying from salvation from the cross, like He doesn't want to just be saved from the cross because the whole time He's saying to Peter and everybody else, I know why I'm here. I know that I came here to die on that cross. So it makes no sense. He's lecturing everybody the whole time. I came here to do this. It doesn't make sense that he would say, save me from this cross now. Because he knew that that, that was his purpose in being here. He, he prays, save me from hell. Save me, or save me from death. But even amidst that prayer, where he knows that's the plan, he says, but your will be done. And he still has this kind of submission to whatever God wants. And that's, out, that's outstanding. Like he's praying the will of God, but saying, but not my will, but your will be done. And a lot of times we think we know what God's will is, and we try to pray it. And maybe, maybe we act like that is it's the only way, it's the only answer. But Jesus is sitting here praying, don't abandon me to death. Don't let this cup pass from me. Don't, don't let your wrath sit here on me. But not my will, but your will be done. So he knows that that's the purpose. But he's still saying, God, your will be done. And, and I think back to what we were talking about before, being in God's presence and treating that seriously. How, how much do we treat being in, the God, in God's presence seriously? When it talks about he was his prayer was heard because of his reverence. That's a pretty serious statement. How reverent are we in front of God? How often do we just approach God flippantly and say, God, please just make things easier for me because this is killing me right now. And it's just like you don't even think about it. And you just kind of throw up a prayer without, without really considering it. You come to church without really caring about what this is, what this means. But, but you've got this, this, this weight here. He was heard because of his reverence. And I feel like, if anything, that's a point of application for us to kind of sit and stop and say, do we, do we come before God reverently? And do we see him as, as being so much higher than us, and so much better than us? And if Jesus was heard because of his reverence, not, not simply because he was the Son of God, how much more reverent should we be? Be. And it says in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I thought that this was particularly interesting. He learned obedience like he didn't know it already. And it has talked about this a few times in Hebrews, about how, how he had to be made like his brothers so that he could become a high priest, so that he could be glorified. And, and here it's saying again that, that he learned obedience. He, he, went through, he had to go through this process. He had to suffer in order to become this. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting statement. And here's what I kind of think about this. And I hope this is helpful. Um, he, to be, in order to be a mediator, he had to be able to represent people. And it says that earlier in uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews. 
It's talking about how he had to be made like his brothers and suffer in order to become a mediator for them, in order to become a great and merciful high priest. But it's still interesting to think about Jesus learning obedience. And here's, here's kind of what I think has happened. When it says learned, I think it's, it's almost as though learning mean, here maybe means experience. He had to experience this set of circumstances in order to fully comprehend this set of circumstances. Obedience isn't obedience if it comes naturally. Does that make sense? Like, there would be no such thing as obedience if it wasn't, or if it was, if it was something that you were already going to do. Does that make sense? Um, so, here, he could sit in heaven all he wanted to and say, yeah, I'm subject to God. I'm, I'm servant to God. I, I follow the will of God. I, I am one with my brothers. I made my brothers. I, I know everything about them. I can represent them. But if he, if he didn't actually experience going down and living as one of them and, and suffering as they suffer, being, and, and being tempted as they're tempted, and living that kind of life, then could he fully know it? Could he fully say that he knew everything about it? Here's kind of my analogy, and this is where I, I hope that this isn't too far off base. Imagine that you walk up to a guy who made a car, and you say, do you know everything that there is to know about this car? And he says, yeah, I designed that car, I built that car, I know everything there is to know about that car. So you start asking all kinds of questions, like, okay, well, what kind of engine is in the car? And he rattles off the kind of engine that it is. Okay, well, what kind of exhaust system? What kind of, where did you guys get the leather for the leather seating? Where did you, and you just ask him all these specific questions, and he can tell you every single thing. What, what, what size bolts are being used right here to, to hold the, this piece in place? And he can could, he could, he could tell you everything about it. But then you say, okay, well, how does the car drive? And he says, well, I've never driven. It's like, well, you just told me you knew everything that there was to know about this car. You made it, you built it, but you've never driven this car. How, how can you tell me that you know everything that there is to know about this car? I feel like maybe it's kind of a similar situation where Jesus could sit there and he could say, I built this, I made people, I can tell you everything there is to know about people. And, and I, I know what they've done from beginning to end. I can tell you the entire history. I know what this guy's getting ready to do. See, he just did. But, but being in that experience, living as a person, was, was part of becoming this mediator. He lived that life so that he really could say, yeah, I know everything there is to know about this. Because I didn't just build it. I lived it. I experienced it. I put myself in that situation. And, and I dealt with everything that they dealt with. And I feel like that's kind of what's being said in verse 8 when he says, although he was a son, he was a son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
So he had to suffer just to live here because he put himself not in the Garden of Eden in per perfection where he's just walking around and it's great. He put himself in, in, in the midst of sin. So he saw the suffering. He had to console people. He had compassion on people who were broken and hurting. They felt it. And, and he was tempted. Satan himself walks up and says, you're God, why don't you do all these things? And he could have. And he knows, I could do whatever I want to, but because I'm here for a purpose, I have to say no to all of those things. So he learned it by doing it. So we're not able to say, well, you don't truly know because you haven't experienced this. We say that all the time to people. Like, people try to walk up and say, it's okay, it's okay. And you say, you don't know because you haven't gone through what I'm going through. You haven't had cancer. You haven't had fans divorce. You haven't had this kind of sickness. You haven't dealt with whatever. And though Jesus didn't, he didn't have sin inside of him, he can say, I've, I've lived this life and I know what it's all about. And so when it gets to verse 9 and it says, being made perfect, I think that what that means is that he became a perfect high priest. He was already a perfect son of God, but he became a perfect high priest through this experience. So it's not as though he was imperfect until this happened, but he became a perfect high priest by fulfilling this role, by living this life. And in doing so, he became, as verse 9 says, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And it kind of hangs on that last thing, doesn't it? So everything's great. So it says, he's going through these, you know, point by point. Jesus came and he became this perfect high priest. He was taken from among his brothers. And no, he wasn't the tribe of Levi, but he's a better priest. And I'll show you why in a second. The does. And he offered up prayers and sacrifices and, and supplications. He experienced what they experienced. He learned obedience. He became a perfect high priest for them so that he could secure this salvation. Because, again, that relationship with God was broken. But he came to fix it. He came to reconcile people to God. But there's, there's almost like an if there. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And man, this is the story of Hebrews, it seems like. Back and forth, back and forth. It's making a case for how great Jesus is, how much better Jesus is. How Jesus is better than a Levitical priest. He's better than an, a, a high priest from Aaron's line. He's better than a humanly high priest. He's, he's done all these things, and here's why you ought to put your faith in him. And here's why he secures his salvation. But then it, it kind of hangs on that. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he never really gets off of that point. Hebrews just keeps hitting us with that. That these things, the things that we learn about Jesus, are supposed to make us put our faith in Him and be obedient to Him. We're supposed to say, 
I do need a mediator. I do need somebody to represent me before God. And Jesus is that. He is that high priest. And if I believe on him, that he can, he can secure that salvation for me. But the requirement is, okay, well, if you believe in Christ, then obey him. So, kind of wrapping up. I don't think that I remember last night. It's okay. We're gonna we're gonna be able to spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus as our high priest, and I, and I hope that we keep learning about God's holiness and how sinful we are. We kind of see further and further the separation between us and Jesus, and that that makes us recognize our need for salvation and. And I think a lot of us tend to think of salvation as like this one time, like I prayed the prayer when I was six years old or 15 years old or whatever years old, and now it's done. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which, yeah, that's true. And there's a sense in which salvation is extended to people who listen to Jesus, who obey what he has to say, who don't fall away, who obey him. So, without saying too much else, this is kind of just a thoughty passage. It's, we'll get back to exhortation. It's harder for me to preach the, the section where he's building an argument. Because next week he's going to get back to, okay, now since all this is true, here's a bunch of exhortation. Here's a bunch of things you need to do. So drawing application from this would be as hard, but I would say that this, this is something that we need to pay attention to. If you are saved, then you are going to obey Christ. And that doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you are seeking after Christ. And you are seeking to obey Him. And that you're unsettled if you find that there's a part of your life where you're not obeying Christ. The good news here is that we just talked about Jesus being our high priest. So if you're sitting here saying, well, I know, I know that there's a, there's a, part, there's a portion of my life here where I'm not obeying Christ, where I'm not willfully following the commands of God or Christ. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If you can, if you can just think about that right off the top of your head, you might think, okay, that's it for me. I, I'm done. I don't have salvation. Well, it, the good news is that the author of Hebrews has been going through here over and over and over and saying, listen, listen, you don't, here's, you, you're, you're, you're focusing on the negative. Yeah, there is a negative, and you do need to be aware of that. But the good news is that he knows what you're going through. And, and he was tempted the way you were tempted. And it says that we can, like, like uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, we can draw confidently toward the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. And we can receive help from Jesus because he's been tempted the way we are. And then chapter 2, verse 18 says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So it's not like 
you, you have to be perfect because you can't. But Jesus being our mediator, our, our high priest, exists in that role to mediate between us and God and to, to help us, to send the Holy Spirit to help us. So before we get too cocky saying, man, I, I was saved forever ago, read that carefully. He became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And now you sit back and say, well, maybe I'm not obeying Christ the way that I need to. Lean on him as high priest. Pray to Christ. Confess sins to him. Ask for forgiveness. Say, you know what I'm going through. You lived this life. You saw the mess. And you know that I'm a mess. If I wasn't, you wouldn't have had to come down here. Help me to put this sin to death. Help me to forgive this person. Help me to get over this bitterness. Help me to act like a Christian for once. Even though I say I am. Help me to love your work. Help me to do these things. And, and I don't think if you come if you come reverently in front of God, in front of Christ, and you say, please help me to do these things. Please help me to do your will. I don't think that the answer is going to be no. Other parts of places in the Bible it says that if you pray the will of God, it's going to be answered. And it is the will of God that we follow him. So if you come up praying the will of God, please help me to do your will. I, I believe that Jesus is there to help you and to say, listen, I know you can't do it. I did it for you. It's okay. I'm here to help you to mediate on your behalf. So, during this response time, maybe take a second and, and pause and say, am I obeying Christ? When he talks about eternal salvation, can I get excited about that? Or do I need to sit back and say, there's a lot of room left for me to grow here? Yeah, Jesus is my high priest in that, or could be my high priest. But am I going to give in to that? Am I going to request that he be that? Am I going to approach God with reverence and, and lean on that on what the high priest has done? It's not that you can that you have to be good enough to receive salvation. It's that you have to put all of that on Christ, knowing that he can take it. So, so let's do that. During Pray with between 
those two realities. And I pray that you would take, take, on, take on my sin and, and offer, offer sacrifice which you have already done for God on my behalf, on our behalf. And that you would approach God because I can't. We can't. And I pray that you, that I, that we, that I, that your people would be, would be atone, our sins would be atoned for in that sacrifice. I confess that there are times that I, I don't, I don't obey perfectly. I am still sinful and I desperately need you. We desperately need you to, to intercede, to go to God because I can't, and to offer the sacrifice, to pray for me, pray for me, please fix my broken heart. I still don't think the way I ought to. I still don't live the way I ought to. There's still a lot of room for me to grow. And I, I need you. Again, I desperately need you. And I pray that in here, you would teach us how desperately we need you. And you would, you would help us to run towards you when we need help, when we are sent. When we don't desire to follow after you, I pray that you would help us to run after you and, and just cry out for help. The way that you, even knowing that you were doing the will of God, you were crying out for God to help you. Oftentimes, we're crying out to God when we're not in the will of God and hoping that God will help us to do something that isn't His will. I pray that you that you would teach us what your will is and that you would help us to live in it but not be satisfied just living in it but, but constantly coming towards you begging, pleading, please don't forsake me, please don't let me do my work